Hello and welcome to today's Permaculture Masterclass, where we dive deep into the many rabbit holes that permaculture opens. Just as the permaculture enthusiast eventually takes a PDC, the PDC graduate eventually goes deeper to levels of mastery and proficiency beyond the PDC. I'm Jesse, and I'll be hosting today's conversation, which should last about 60 to 90 minutes, with space throughout for Q&A. So please send any questions to the chat, and we'll make sure that our guest gets them. Today, we are honored to feature the work of Matt Liban and explore in depth the wonderful world of foodscaping. Matt is most passionate about creating magical food moments. He is driven by the belief that food connects us all. By cultivating food crops with a reverence for Mother Earth, he believes we can begin to heal our bodies and the land. Matt got his start with farming as a Peace Corps volunteer in Paraguay, where he was initially bit by the gardening bug. He went on to study ecological design and work on several farms. For five seasons, Matt worked on the Earth Dance Organic Farm School until he left his role as farm manager in 2017. Now with custom foodscaping, Matt is a practitioner and designer of edible landscapes and gardens. We're so pleased to have you here. Matt, welcome. Very thrilled to be here. Thanks, Jesse. Absolutely. Anything you'd want to add to the brief bio that we read um, to paint a more clear picture or that we maybe got wrong? Oh, definitely didn't get anything wrong. I would add one other um, kind of side business that we started out of custom foodscaping, which is a design build edible landscaping company, is we started this other business called The Foodscaper because we, we quickly realized in this uh, foodscaping industry that we um, needed educational support. So The Foodscaper is a the tool shed for professional edible landscapers. We operate an educational site there to um, bring resources and support to people who do foodscaping and edible landscaping for a living. Okay, that's perfect. Thank you for that. And just to get a little background on you yourself, wh where are you living now? And then where were you sort of born and raised? And maybe yeah. we can go on the little your life's journey with you. Yes. Well, we we are back to where I started this journey, which is in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, okay. I I currently live in St. Louis, Missouri. I was born in the house that I am currently filming this at, in my parents' house. Um, I have I have flown the nest at this point, but I'm back there for a very nice, quiet place to do this recording. Um, and um, I live in the city of St. Louis now. Okay. So obviously we mentioned the Peace Corps in there, but were you always like a nature related kid? Was it always something that was in your mind's eye or did that come to you later? Um, you know, I'm, I'm continually exploring this question myself. I grew up a sports crazed kid. So I okay. was very much like an outdoor kid, but I would just like, I went to bed with my roller skates on, you know, I was just <laughs> like, let's wake up. I mean, we were, we were playing kick the can with the neighbors and we were uh, sledding, you know, all day when it snowed and we were, but it was, um, I grew up in a very like sports focused atmosphere. I played you know, competitive sports my whole life and, you know, sports throughout high school, all that stuff was a big part of my life um, as a child, which is to say that there was no space for the nature um, and the camping and the plants and uh, mm. all the things, you know, all the things that interest me now are, um, were not part of my childhood. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting. I was kind of similar. I, I was always mm. like a be outside and play with my friends for as long as I could, yeah. sort of, which is to me kind of adjacent to like being very nature focused. And I would explore the woods and things like that. But I was much more like into sports as well. Soccer was kind of my favorite sport. What, what was your favorite sport? <laughs> um, yeah, first half of my childhood was really like soccer and um and baseball focused. And then I got really into tennis and then tennis kind of dominated, uh, for, for a number of years there. Okay, cool. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then take me to how you went from sports map to mm -hmm. I'm going to go to Paraguay or whatever yeah. was the next step toward that. Yeah. The real step was like, I did a semester abroad in Spain in college and I was just like, my world was blown open by just the world of culture and how, amazing it felt to be outside of my comfort zone and not knowing uh, how to speak Spanish. And I was um, immediately, I was living in like a Spanish dorm where it was all, you know, Spanish kids. And I really was like, just uh, realized like, I don't speak the language here. And I've, you know, and I just, I studied really hard that semester. I learned as much Spanish as I could. I started to come out of my comfort zone. And then by the time I left, I was like, had gotten some of those highs of speaking Spanish and, and feeling like I'm a normal person at some point. And then I was just dead set on realizing, okay, I have, there's so much of the world that I want to explore that I am currently not, you know, I, I don't know anything about the world. I want to explore and I want to understand um, how to help people, really. I think that um, I was always um, attracted to kind of like um, to ways that I could be of service. And um, mm -hmm. that was a big thing that my mom instilled in me and never really, um, at this point when I was in Spain, you know, I was like 21 years old, I still really didn't know how I was gonna do that. but. Right. Um, I ultimately figured that out by doing the Peace Corps, which I, I didn't know what I was going to um, really do with, with the Peace Corps. I was there totally to continue to explore the world, to continue learning languages. I got an uh, assignment to go to Paraguay, and then I was in rural Paraguay, and my, my trainer, who you know, is kind of like doing all the original educational coursework before we kind of go out and live on our own, he was a real like agroecology guy and a very uh, permaculture guy. And um, he exposed me to permaculture, took us to really cool uh, permaculture farms and kind of just blew my mind with the things that he was exposing us to, helped us plant our first garden. We had a three month training. So even during that training, we planted some vegetables and watched them grow. And mm. all that was just like, I just couldn't get enough, totally mind blown. And then um, now I had this word permaculture. So I was able to, you know, download what podcasts were available at that time and um, just kind of start going down the rabbit hole. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool that you got involved with somebody who was so knowledgeable in agroforestry. Do you say agroecology or agroforestry? both. Of oh, them. probably both. Yeah, probably both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. And then so from there, because like, I'm always fascinated by like the word permaculture is kind of like a, it's a weird one, it sticks in your brain, and you might not pick up that rabbit trail until a little bit later. But how was the next step in your permaculture journey? Did you end mm -hmm. up taking a PDC? Or what did you go to next? Yeah. Um, well, you know, 
my next step was really um, the, spending the next two years amongst rural Paraguayan farmers where, you know, when I look back, that was like the ultimate PDC. Um, yeah. Even though I wasn't doing any formal coursework, I was so lucky that I was living amongst small landholder farmers who were incredibly diverse in what they were growing. A lot of organic fair trade sugarcane farmers, but a lot of agroforestry practices, a lot of papaya trees with melons and bananas and um, pineapples growing all around. Everybody had mangoes and, and guavas and every kind of citrus growing outside their house. I mean, we're talking about very humble people, but everybody had all these fruit trees. Everybody had a garden. Everybody wow. had chickens, pigs. Some people had cows and the people who had cows, that was kind of like their um, investment, their their bank account. You know, the more money they had, the more cows they'd invest in. And um, wow. such a diversity of you know, it's kind of like the old homestead that we we talk about a lot in American culture that's very much not present anymore. And um, but super based on lots of trees, lots of perennial crops that um, and then, yeah, so I finished my time with the Peace Corps and I went on. I did do a PDC. I ended up finding a ecological learning center <clears throat> in Israel that oh. had a um, that had a um a a pdc that lasted six months while you worked on the farm basically oh okay and so my pdc was quite unusual in that it wasn't the intensive experience it was more like live and work on the farm ex live in the compost toilet you know take showers every day with the solar heated water and kind of like living a lot of the things that you learn in a pdc about um community design and um kind of just low impact living yeah yeah exactly you got to experience it firsthand which uh, yeah i agree most people especially probably here in north america most people don't have that fully immersive pdc i didn't um but still it was a great experience i am curious though about the your peace corps like what were you doing there you're hanging out with all these like small <laughs> landholders like did they just put you to work or are they like hey just go help us plant trees and stuff like yeah. that? yeah oh man I wish I could say it was that um, because that would have made just a lot of sense. You know, the Peace Corps comes with this idea of, like you're supposed to have a main project and you're supposed to kind of um, find ways to help your community. And I, I think I quickly realized that, um, you know, helping my community was was kind of a joke. Um, I didn't speak the language. I ended up going to a place where the first language was actually mostly Guarani, the indigenous language of that area. Oh, and wow. at that point, my Spanish was um, significantly better and I was, I was quite, um, I was managing Spanish well. It's a bilingual country, so everybody speaks Spanish and a lot of people speak Guarani and Spanish. Um, and the rural area is definitely Guarani. So, you know, I didn't have any agricultural skills. I didn't have the language. So like, what am I supposed to teach? I'm this 23 year old kid. How am I? Um, so I ended up kind of getting involved with the sugarcane cooperative that was in town and they um, were exporting fair trade organic sugarcane. There was a factory there and all my neighbors pretty much had, you know, oxen carts and were cutting down sugarcane and taking it to the factory and getting paid based on the weight that they brought them. Super interesting experience into the i mean i was getting to live firsthand like the commodity crop um world yeah 
and and all that was getting exported to Canada and Europe. And um, but the basically, I spent my time at the beginning, kind of like going to the co-op, helping them with translations, trying to learn um, what they were doing. But then I was um, not really enjoying my time at the co-op, and I was like, I got to get out of here, y'all. Sorry. And I found a new project leader, and it was actually a woman who had started a um, a basically a little farmer's market out on the road. And she and the other ladies who were in that community selling their vegetable crops were trying to get this little farmer's market and this little bakery going. And I basically would just attend their meetings and try to help them out with the skills that I did have, which were some basic things like, you know, um, marketing and admin and accounting. Um, but really, um, spent a lot of time working on my neighbor's farms and that was the best both because I learned so much but also because that was how I actually was able to get respect from my neighbors you know if you go out and chop sugarcane all day with a machete yeah. um you can make friends fast and 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 earn the respect of your neighbors so totally that's really cool and both of your experiences are very very hands on like you're kind of saying it's kind of in, uh, unusual maybe the PVC you took in that it was so immersive, but it was also so like it's work study. You're not just coming to learn the PDC curriculum and then go off and do what you do. You're very much like I'm learning the skills as I go. So how did how did those, you know, sort of early experiences lead into the foodscaping idea? Because even the foodscaping word, I don't think is super well known or used mm -hmm. in permaculture. It's usually like food forest or forest garden or something like that. Mm -hmm. So lead us to that foodscaping yeah. So for me, foodscaping is the profession of designing, installing, and maintaining food producing landscapes for clients for a living. So okay. I like to use the word foodscaping because it takes off of the word landscaping. And landscaping is an industry. It's not um, a food forest, right? right? A food forest is like a thing. It doesn't pertain to any economic... Um, boundaries right but like landscaping is an industry we can say oh there's people who make their living doing landscaping i'm a landscaper i do landscape design these are all um the offshoots of the landscaping industry so what i'm trying to do or you know what we're trying to do with with a foodscaper is to use the same vernacular around foodscaping we yeah. do the um we do design we do install we do maintenance for the kinds of landscapes that we are learning about in the permaculture um, mm. books, you know, except in so many times within the permaculture world, I feel like we're talking about these in the context of our own properties. And we're basically with the foodscaping industry trying to apply these um, towards clients who are paying us to do this work. Yeah. That makes sense. Absolutely. Is it a, a phraseology of your own or did you come across that somewhere? I, I cannot take any credit. Um, no, there, there have been like um, books and the word was out there before I took any claim. Okay. To it. But I will say that I feel like we're really trying to hammer home this idea that foodscaping is a is a profession. It's a job. It will hum, hopefully one day feel like more of an industry um, yes. where people might say, I, you know, I want to work in the foodscaping industry, or I would like to be a foodscaper, meaning that I want to be out there, 
you know, building gardens, planting fruit trees, digging swales, doing maintenance on, you know, native prairies, all these types of activities. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it is like, I wouldn't, I, I was a landscaper growing up as mm -hmm. one of my many jobs, but it was never, it just felt like you mowed and you smelled like gas all the time. Oh. It didn't <laughs> feel like you were really adding some beautiful ecological function or maintaining some beautiful, that would have been a totally different experience, I think for me and a much more compelling one. So, mm -hmm. so I'm with you there. So how, how did you get from Israel PDC to what you're doing now and what your main sort of focus is currently? Yeah, well, I worked on a few farms, one of which was um, this nonprofit organic farm school called Earth Dance, which is in St. Louis. It's a 14 acre farm school. I started working there they, um, after they'd been around for a few years, but they were able to finally purchase the land the year that I started there, which meant that they were finally starting to do like larger infrastructure projects and start to think about um, perennial plantings. And I was like, yes, I'm right on time. Because by this time, you know, I'd been like five years down the permaculture rabbit hole and I was super, um, geeky when it came to uncommon vegetables and uncommon fruits and, and really plants have always kind of been my jam. Um, and so we had all this space, 14 acres to start experimenting with the things that I was reading about and was interested in. We planted an edible landscape um, full of gummies and aronia and rain gardens and currants and figs. And um, then we had out in the field, like in the production fields, we started kind of agroforestry style, um, planting a lot of pawpaws and Asian pears, Cool. trying to plant um, fruit trees that could um, produce a harvestable crop without consistent sprays of any kind. Mm -hmm. And then we also experimented with other fruit trees at that time, like things like service berries and um, currants and, and gooseberries growing underneath things. Um, pie cherries were a big um, part of that planting scheme as well. So anyway, just kind of like really got mm -hmm. Um, an education during those five years growing all kinds of uncommon fruits. That's great. I love that. It was Jason Gerhardt a part of that or who, who was sort of leading that endeavor? Um, there's a woman named Molly Rockman who okay. is uh, the founder and they're 15 years in now to that. Um, and she's still with them? She's still there. Okay, cool. That I'm always just half keeping an ear open for like, I might need to meet that person at some point. So she one worth yes, meeting and a project we're checking in on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's doing a lot of different things, but the main thing is kind of a small scale organic um, market garden. So right. Okay. The uh, the fruit trees and the edible landscaping stuff are, are less of a focus, and it's more about education for the community and growing vegetables for their um, farm stand. Okay, cool. Yeah, and so for myself, being a, a plant nerd too, I really responded and related to a lot of what you said and was the same and, and reading all the, the books about perennial vegetables and like just novel plants that are interesting yeah. and then you read about them and you're so just excited. Like, well, I got to know what it tastes like. So you want to plant a few. But then there's a far cry from just kind of like dabbling or, or doing it at your homestead and then doing it more like a landscaper, like putting in rows of gooseberries such that they're well 
you know, mulch so that they're going to survive. Like for instance, I put in, I don't know, 50 gooseberries, let's say in a farm field where I was working as a member of a cooperative, but I didn't really have the scale and the landscaper knowledge about, well, how do I mulch these and, you know, keep them so the grasses don't just outcompete them in two or three or four years. So that's a whole other skill set. And obviously that's what your main focus is with custom foodscaping. How did you, was that part of what you learned at Earth Dance there was like mm. how to sort of like put these in like a landscaping crew or did that come later? Yeah, that really came later. That's been kind of like trial by fire. You know, Gaia's Garden was a huge inspiration for me in terms of as a, as a book. That was the that was the book that we used as the textbook for my PDC. Oh, wow. And so um, just this idea of like planting guilds and natural curves throughout the landscape with planting beds and pathways and keyholes mm -hmm. and um, this whole organic kind of like urban suburban food forest vibe was just um right up my alley then you know i remember when the pictures of eric tonesmeyer's backyard came out and yeah. he wrote, wrote paradise lot and edible forest gardens and i was just i was just so into those that that was really where my passion was even though i was working at this market garden and um i i to take it back to Gaia's garden, really, that was kind of like the inspiration for this landscaping type business. You know, obviously okay. I'd worked on a bunch of farms, so I knew about tools and planting and soil health and things of that nature. But I had to learn a lot over the last six, seven years now about landscaping and trucks and trailers and presenting um, designs to clients and coming up with a scope of services and under using photos to... Yeah. Um, communicate what the expectation is going to be for the client and um, a lot of other things that had nothing to do with my time at Earth Dance and other farms that I'd worked on. Okay. Yep. So you, like a lot of us, you just kind of had to figure it out as you're going <laughs> and you know, you gain those skills, but there's some, you know, as you look back, you're, you're like, man, I wish, I wish I would have known what I know now on those earlier projects. They could have been that much more successful, but such is life and such is how we learn, I suppose. Um, so maybe now's a good chance, Matt, to jump into some some visual sort of like scene projects and seeing the type of work that you've been doing. And then throughout this, maybe you can give some advice as to how if somebody is looking at this from a new and like, oh, I want to start that. Maybe you can cut their learning curve a little bit with some, with some of your uh, acquired knowledge. Sure. Well, geez, uh, you know, I can I can certainly do my best. I um, let's see. I'm gonna start here. Um, is this how's that showing up? Does that look yep, good yep. on your end? Yep. Yeah. So the, we we've done a lot of projects. I will say that um, we are mostly working in residential projects. So I give that caveat. But some of the commercial projects are are honestly more fun and more interesting to talk about. So I'm okay. gonna start here. Um, and talk about some of these different projects that we've worked on. So we're looking at things like YMCA's and restaurants, community food forests, um, and little and some different corporate projects of that nature. So this was a um, restaurant that got built, and we we ripped out those um, those plants and, and proposed to them that we plant this edible landscape. And I had a a relationship with the chef already and, and kind of made this pitch and um, kind of asked a landscape designer friend to come up with these different 
images and they actually went for it. So kind of cool. found my buddy, my buddy, Dan, who had a big, a big truck and knew about hardscaping. He kind of mentored me on this job. And, um, this was one of our first jobs. It was a restaurant job and we planted all kinds of edible flowers, things like nasturtiums, lots of alpine strawberries, um, Beautiful. and kind of a whole perennial herb garden for the chefs, lots of, um, uncommon fruits like jujubes and figs. Mm. And, um, you know, that, that was a, one of our first projects that really helped us get a, um, get exposure because it was kind of a public facing job. So people were yeah. asking and, um, yeah, one, one of the things I learned in, in this job is that, you know, I packed in too many plants, which is obviously a, a very common mistake for, for early growers. But especially in this case, you know, um, the whole guild concept, I really learned that the guild concept is, is cool, but it a lot of times doesn't leave, um, enough like negative space where there's just not a whole huge wall of green. And, and so we ended up pulling some plants out, which was, um, has really helped kind of just keep things feel more open and interesting with, um, mm. with different nooks and crannies within there. Um, we did. Hey, a, before you move on, Matt, just a sure. quick question in terms of the hardscaping. Yeah. Um, at this point, you partnered with a friend who had those skills. Did you then at this point feel like, oh, okay, I kind of know how to do it myself? Or did you continue to partner with like his business to do the next projects? Uh, I did a few with him. I think probably two, you know, okay. and then um, ultimately um, ended up when we kind of got into more hardscaping projects, we, we hired like somebody on the team who had more of those skills. Okay. And that's, that's kind of that a big part of my whole story with this is that so many of the things that we do with um, the work of, you know, foodscaping and landscaping required way more skills than I had with just like, I feel like I had a very like permaculture upbringing into this, but you know, people who knew all kinds of things like about trucks and trailers and carpentry and hardscaping, you know, these were really important skill sets for building out the business into what it is today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. That's great. Um, so another one of my favorites is this, uh, YMCA sensory garden. Um, there's a video there that I don't, I'm not going to play for now, but just kind of like lots of, um, different things going on. This was kind of like a general concept design of the, of the site. And then I use a lot of photos and, um, like this to kind of help sell what's going on with a lot of our jobs. Oh, cool. So being very clear of what people can expect, you know, and, and trying to get, um, fun things in, in this garden, you know, think using, colorful everything purple asparagus and utilizing um different groupings of hexagon beds to create different themes mm -hmm. um i'll show you get i'll get to some of the pictures here in a, in a second but this was all kind of the design that the client is seeing in, in the presentation i'm sharing with them mm -hmm. 
and then we actually start the build out. And in this case, we were using like raised beds for most of this because it was pretty much compacted gravel, the entire site that we were working on. Yeah. So we needed to, um, we needed to get some, um, some decent soil in for this job. So we kind of show up and we brought the beds. We have a little shop where we built a lot of these garden beds, show up in the trucks, unload the wheelbarrows. And, and a lot of this is, um, you know, one thing I kind of didn't mention that I was thinking about is how a lot of this really feels like the permablitz kind of yeah. idea, you know, and, and that when I was exposed to the ideas of Gaia's garden and permaculture rebuilding communities, it was like this idea of the permablitz where we get together with all our friends and community members and we like transform a landscape in a very short amount of time. Yeah, That's, that's really the dream that, um, influence the starting of a of a foodscaping business you know it's like i don't want to just do this for my house which we did you know i i, I did do the whole permablitz thing at my house but then it's like the fun's over you know <laughs> i want to keep i want to keep this going and i want this to be like my everyday and of course um in doing that you know you deal with a lot of the stresses that come from taking it from a hobby to a profession and all kinds of worries about money and um, different, you know, client expectations and writing of contracts and all the yucky stuff. But, right. um, yeah, we did, we did that YMCA project. This was a really, um, fun one that was a new community being built in the city of St. Louis. And it was kind of a planned community mm. and they had, it, it's kind of an upper, you know, middle-class type deal where they have amenities within the community, like a pool and, um a clubhouse things like that um but one of the amenities was a food forest and so we were super lucky we got to work with the architect who was working on the community and they were really inspired by these images of like the market garden but yes. the goal was more of a food forest mm. so they kind of mocked this up and it was this idea of like meandering lines plants in blocks like a market garden but the but the perennials of a food forest so we kind of okay. mapped this out this was kind of the final design that we went with where we're utilizing shrubs aronia elderberry dwarf cherry clove currant um and we had persimmon asian pear and service berry in there as well and then each of these blocks that you see you see these lines they're all representing different um, perennials that got planted. So there's there's a patch of lavender and a patch of asparagus and a patch of sorrel and oregano and thyme and Roman chamomile. Everything perennial and in these in this whole patchwork um, design. And so mm -hmm. we then we kind of took over from at this point once the you know site was prepped and and got the soil pathways in, started doing the planting. Um, and then you can see we actually, and we opted to use two different colors of mulch um, to be able to offset the rows that we were trying to represent visually. Oh, nice. And um, pretty. Yeah, this was kind of, you know, this, this year, the ground covers running all over the place and 
Yeah, the one on the bottom left was we took this year. Well, the, these pictures we just took it this fall, and now okay. it's really starting to grow in. And um, and it, it feels like a little bit of a park, you know, um, yeah. in the community. This this is directly surrounded by four different houses. So it's kind of a high-stakes job because all these people are just, like, walking right out their door and seeing the little food for us. But um, ultimately, it's been um, – it's exactly the kind of thing that I love, which is creating experiences where people are just kind of like spilling out into this landscape. And there, we've done um, educational events there to educate the, the homeowners about what's growing. You know, this is the time, and this is lemon balm, and this is. Um, you know, the bee balm that you can use in tea, all the, all the different plants and talking about their various uses. Yeah. And I imagine education and maybe signage is a, a fairly big part of it because, you know, normally in the everyday American experience, you think of spaces like this as you, as the pathway, it's like you walk through it. You don't interact mm -hmm. with it. You don't, you don't bend down to pick things or taste berries or whatnot. And of course me and you and permaculturists are like, you know, the whole ecosystem is sort of meant to be interacted with and tasted and planted and, you know, so I imagine with a project like that, that education is a key piece. So people feel comfortable like, oh, OK, I can Huge. harvest things, you know, for cooking. Huge. Yeah. Yep. I, I wish they had done opted for more signage. You know, they were after a very specific aesthetic. And um, right. You'll, you'll see that. Part of um, this next project I'm going to talk about is actually the opposite in terms of signage. They were all about it. This was at a school mm -hmm. where um, a pre-K through 12 wanted to do a um, what they called a permaculture orchard. So they had already heard of the word permaculture. They actually had a high school class that was called sustainability, and they learned about permaculture mm -hmm. there. And so they were looking for a site to do the permaculture orchard. And um, we ended up finding this kind of abandoned big hillside and working with them to identify sun, find the nearest water source, um, and then had a buddy of mine do this design. And um, now, you know, this was our very first year actually in business and the same with that um, restaurant. And okay. so I was kind of working with friends who had more design skills to produce something that looked pretty enough for me to submit to them. And then over the years, I hired people with more professional design skills and then kind of got some actual design skills myself um, to be able to create presentations. But this was the, um, these were two linear food forests. So this was right out of like some of the permaculture stuff I was learning um, or, you know, had learned. And we, we had done the same kind of thing at Earth Dance with rows of fruit trees and understory herbaceous perennials and, and, um, fruiting shrubs. Yeah. So we kind of did the whole berm and swale thing because this was a suitable site for that, not too steep of a slope. And, um, we went in, tilled up the swale. And then from there, once we had the swale tilled up, we were able to make a really nice berm and we, we set it a little bit off contour and we could see that all the water was coming across the landscape and eventually leaving the end of the berm where you can see in the bottom left hand of the picture. Yep. Um, put down drip irrigation. In this case, we ended up putting down landscape fabric, which is something we almost never do. But um, 
these school environments where the weeds are so um, it's very it's very hard in my experience to find schools who will really put in the effort early on to get plants established. Right. So we ended up going with the landscape fabric here. We ended up marking every single plant in the design with a flag. And then when I brought the plants, the students were um, able to just match the plants with the flag and then pull the flag. Oh, great. So that was a helpful way for the kids to be able to plant every plant. Right. And, um, and then put mulch on everything. We ended up actually finding out that the, uh, the strawberries, which were a big part of this design, they just rooted very happily into the mulch and they were incredibly productive. Mm. So it kind of, you know, went, go, went on, we're, we're six years into this one now and it's been, um, we, we ended up pulling. Oh, you, have, you have a guest. <laughs> I have no idea who that is because my parents are not even in town. Um, <laughs> Well, if you need to check, Matt, you can. I mean, yeah, if it's, it seems important, I, I don't want to interrupt. <laughs> I um, I think we're good. I think we're okay. good. So, um, yeah, look at this signage that they put up. I was super pumped about this. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you can see they've got a whole sign. What is permaculture? They had a beautiful sign capturing and moving water using berms and swales. I mean, they just awesome. nailed it. What we've planted and why. Um, and they talk about things like supporting pollinators and, and, um, resisting insect pests. So this was, I mean, um, wow. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> In, insane strawberry harvests. They had, they ended up, you know, we probably planted like 50 strawberry plants. It wasn't that yeah, that's, many that's plants, not a ton. Yeah. but of course they run and they spread and, um, they filled in the early spaces so well. I don't know if you can see in the bottom left in the bottom kind of middle picture, yep. how it just became a ground cover. Um, and it overtook a lot of the other plants that we planted and it ended up being fine because a lot of the plants are so robust. I mean, you could look at, if you look at these berms, like it's not just strawberries, there's tons of lemon balm and sage and, um, lots of monardas and garlic chives that went everywhere. And, and so this has really been a, um, an experience that has, has brought me a lot of satisfaction. The, the real highlight came when two years ago I went for the first time and the American persimmon trees, which were then five years old, um, were just loaded with these were grafted American persimmons with big, beautiful fruit that yeah. um, you can see in the right hand picture and and they got loads of fruit and then even this last year it's been even more and so that that's just the kind of thing that um, gets me super pumped because the kids are out there harvesting the persimmons off the ground and learning about all this stuff so that was well that that's so cool man and I love that it's linked with the kids and it's like whoever the teacher is they seem to be committed to this being part of the ongoing curriculum is to go out there and observe but also harvest because that is one of the things like you kind of want to be involved in these landscapes you don't want to just set them there and then like nobody ever touches them again you know yep that happens so often and um you know we we've been a part of other ones that kind of um didn't have as great of an outcome as this one, but this one, you know, this school has done such a great job integrating it into curriculum. They have a sustainability part of the high school curriculum. So they really are able to integrate it. And that is obviously what is, um, 
so key for long-term success. Yeah, that's amazing. This is another and, oh, one. You know, oh, I, yeah. I, sorry, sorry to interrupt again. I just had a question on your sure. business's uh, relationship to maintenance. What do you typically mm. set up or, or does that just change depending on the client? Yeah, we, so I am all about maintenance. My, my current like passion within the business is the maintenance department. Okay. Um, because yeah, we, we do offer maintenance. So every time we plant a, uh, a foodscape, we offer people maintenance and then we will give them the option of doing monthly, bi-monthly, quarterly, or just end of year. Oh, great. And um, that's turned out to be, um, now we have two people who make, who are almost full-time just maintenance. Um mm. And, and that is so awesome because we get to learn so much about what's going on in all the landscapes. We get to see plants over time. We get yep. to um, support these clients by, you know, doing a lot of the heavy lifting that they otherwise can't do. Um, and it, it's a really reliable revenue source for us. And mm-hmm. we, we offer the maintenance based on what their needs are, basically. Um, okay. so we're, we're doing everything. We're mulching, we're pruning, we're, um, scouting for, you know, pester disease issues. We're adjusting irrigation if there's irrigation. And, um, I don't know if that answers your question, Jesse. No, it totally does. And replacing plants that die, that sort of thing. Definitely. So I get, I gather from that though, that you're not doing and nor necessarily should you, but I kind of wondered if you did, including like normal quote unquote landscaping maintenance, like mowing lawn or weed whacking, but that's separate from what you're offering, right? Yeah, we, we don't offer that. Um, you know, I think there is a huge market for um, like organic lawn care. Mm. Um, if I think that if somebody was, you know, okay with more conventional um, landscape maintenance, like things like mowing and things like, um, and, you know, doing the, the weed whacking and the blowing of leaves and things like that. Um, I think taking a more ecological approach to that and then educating clients about, you know, the, these types of projects, I think we would otherwise get a lot of new clients that way because Mm. so, so many people are like living in their suburban home and they, they really want to do the right thing, but they're too scared to um, upset the, you know, all the neighbors and, and the convention. So finding a middle ground has been something that we have um, tried to find. Although, you know, for me personally, I'm not really somebody who's interested in going that route. But I do think that there we get people all the time asking us like, do you do, yes, you yes. know, will you mow our lawn for us? You know, we don't need to use any herbicides or anything. Just, just mow the grass, you know, let the yeah. clover and the violets come up. Right. That's great though. I love hearing that from your perspective because you're so, you're so involved in this. So that's good to know. And other people can pick up on that and offer more of those services. <clears throat> Hopefully. Yeah. Um, I'll share. You want me to keep going with this, Jesse? How's this? Is this? I'm digging it, man. I mean, I, I like seeing those successful projects. So this is great. I still gotcha. Uh, uh, yeah, your audio changed, though, a little bit. What happened? Did, am I 
fading out or something. Did I lose you, Matt? Where'd he go? Oh, I have you, Justin. Yeah, do you not hear me? I I think something happened there. I don't know what happened, but I'll share my screen again. Should you you think? Should I go back to that um that presentation we were on? Yeah, if you're comfortable with that, if you feel like you're ready to move on to the more residential, then you could do that too. But I'm I'm digging it. It's great to see. Okay, you know this was a um a company that had a little patio outside of their office, and they did wine storage, so they were really into wine. And um, they did like private um, storage of wine of, of wine collection. And so we were doing like a cool. vineyard and an edible landscape. They wanted super like Napa, you know, Sonoma type vibes. Um, we put in an orchard, you know, we're setting fence posts, running wire cables, things of that nature. You know, this is what it looked like after the first year planting ornamentals like, uh, you know, marigolds and Rosa Rugosa and lavender. And we built that arbor with a swing there, planted a hardy kiwi on the arbor. We've got things like raspberries growing against the fence. Um, here you can see, you know, some of the chairs that people can come sit out and be right next to that beautiful Rosa Rugosa. And, um, and ultimately they got tons of great harvests off of all of these. So that, that was, awesome. um, another project that just did there, you know, really allowed me to explore creativity and, and feel like I was getting to choose fun and interesting varieties of all different kinds of things. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, I always have questions, but with, with clients like this, are you typically, um, offering them a portfolio of like, this is what we can do, or is it more like, Hey, what do you guys want to do? And we can craft something really interesting for your unique circumstance. That's a great question. So people get a, um, I, when, when we are interacting with a client before this starts, they are getting a questionnaire that asks a lot of questions about what they're interested in. We request when we do the consultation that they share a Pinterest board, um, when, if they don't do that, they're not required to, then I'm asking questions. And then I'm basically, um, we go into the design phase after the consultation. And then in the design phase, I'm, I'm giving them pictures and I'm saying, what do you think of this? Like, do you like, is this, is this the aesthetic that you're going for? Um, and I'm providing that in the design so that we have agreed upon aesthetics and vibes that, that are, um, before we go into the project. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, yeah, let's see. I'll go and try to share a different. Yeah. While you're doing that, I'll just pull up my screen here and share. um, Let's talk a little bit about for people listening, um, before, uh, before before the beginning of February, if you're listening to this, uh, just quickly a little commercial. And and if you want to learn more about Matt and his work and sort of more the day-to-day and more double-clicking into the business aspect as if you might start a business similar to this or, you know, graft some of Matt's ideas into your own business, then Pina has a summit coming up that I just want to 
point everybody's attention to. And Matt's going to be there. Thank, thank you, Matt. We appreciate that. The, the theme is leveling up your permaculture practice. And we've got a ton of great speakers and we might even still get a few more yet, but it's really about business. Um, and you can go to summit.pina.in to learn more and to register for free. The whole summit's free. If you want to own the presentations or something, there, there's other costs that you can uh, sort of in, incur. But to to be there live, to, to check out everybody, Matt, to Larry, to Mark, to Gene, to all these awesome presenters uh, is absolutely free. And we've got a great, I mean, I'm really excited about what this is bringing to the table in terms of marketing, in terms of um you know, regenerative pricing in terms of partnering and creating business guilds. It's just, it's shaping up to be a really great event. Um, so please go ahead. And, and if you're, if you're on time, go to summit.pina.in and sign up for free. And we'd love to see you there. And Matt, I'm not exactly sure when your presentation, I've just finalized the schedule, um, but it may change, but I think you're on the second day, but I'm not quite sure. So if you're like, Oh, I want to catch Matt's a more formal presentation at the summit, then just go register and look around on the schedule and you'll see him in there. And we hope to see y'all in there. And thanks again, Matt. Can't wait, man. Oh yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm super excited to be a part of it. And um, yeah, that whole presentation is kind of going to be like um, flipping the, the hood on the business and trying to show you the underbelly side of like, what does it actually take to do this work day to day? That, yeah, that's perfect. Oops. I just lost your screen share. Bring that back up. I'd love, I'd love to see that. That looked really cool. What was that? Oh, oh yeah. Um, that was this. So yeah, this is like a lot of what, um, the work, this is what, our projects look like more on a residential scale, very commonly. Okay. So this is like going, you know, this is kind of the before and after the, the before on the left side is what this, this is just a small city backyard in St. Louis. And then the after on the, on the right there. So we yeah. do a, a fair amount of like raised bed construction, but we've really gotten into the business of um, being people's like backyard, um, space creators, you know, how do we create spaces that people want to just be in their yard? They want to spend time there. They want to dine outside. They want to do fire pit activities outside. They want to host their friends. Um, we really want those spaces to be food focused, you know, with the co custom foodscaping thing, but also by adding things like pergolas and benches and some of the other stuff we're doing with carpentry and hardscaping, like edging, um, and patios, we're able to do, um, create whole outdoor experiences, you know? So this is uh, one of our clients, like the backyard, we're kind of getting there, checking all of our measurements of our design. Um, let me know if this plays, this is a short time. Yep. lapse. So this yep. is kind of a time lapse, you know, we're doing things like getting our garden square and making sure that, um, we know where the layout is because we're about to bring the garden beds in. And then I'm, I'm t doing some tilling so that we can have loose soil to work with as we bring these garden beds in. We custom build all these beds with local Eastern red cedar that's cool. getting, um, you know, small batch harvested and um, done with a lo little local sawmill. So this is us kind of getting the bones of the, uh, of the project going. And then... Mm -hmm see if I can advance the slide. And then I'm just kind of next steps. We're like laying everything out. So I'm using 
marking paint and flags. We're getting everything laid out so that when we have more people on the team come, we can, um, everybody knows exactly where things are going and don't need to wait on me. Um, we are doing things like I'm, I'm showing in that middle picture, how we're like digging out edges along the sidewalk. And, um, you know, those are just like a lot of, a lot of these things like digging out edges along sidewalk. These are things that we spend a lot of time doing as foodscapers that are not the glamorous, you know, perma blitz afterwards pictures. Um, yes. you know, you can see that we have a dump truck over there on the right, you know, behind the fence, like somebody's driving the dump truck to the compost yard to get compost, you know, and, um, a lot of the work is not that glamorous. It's just, it's landscaping work. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the project continues, we're getting things laid out. I'm marking where I, we want to set fence posts. We're using drills a lot to put in, um, trellises. We're using a post level to make sure that the, the mm. posts are getting set in, um, in this case, we brought in, we're able to get upcycled um, St. Louis brick by the pallet. So it's like used brick that's been saved from demolished buildings that were decrepit. Great. And so we use that as our hardscaping material as often as we can. And then we're setting up uh, drip irrigation for all these gardens. And then we set those up with a timer um, on all of our vegetable gardens to make sure that people don't um, have to stress about watering and, and that way we can use really efficient drip irrigation systems instead of them putting sprinklers out there on everything and, um, making things and ultimately not helping the crops. And then this is what it looked like when we were done with this project. Um, and you can see somebody that's Haley on our team going to sitting on the bench that we built and, and, you know, in a tiny space, you know, they've got a bunch of garden beds. They've got some blackberries and raspberries. They've got an espaliered apple tree. They've got some herbaceous perennials kind of planted into those stepping stones. So um, yeah. a lot in a small space. And now they don't have to mow any grass whatsoever. Exactly. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've ever done the like calculations on it, but it seems to me like it would add a ton of value to the property. I don't know if that's actually true because maybe some people who want to buy this property next are like, I don't like any of that. And we want to get rid of it. Um, mm -hmm. I can't imagine that. I would just imagine that would be a, a benefit to anybody looking to further sell or buy a property like this. Yeah, I would certainly hope so, you know, um, but only time will tell here. <laughs> yep. You'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. Or if you keep at this for another 10, 15 years, you'll start right. to see those, those effects. But, you know, I heard once like, adding a pond to a property adds, you know, X amount of value mm. to the property, just baseline, just because you put a pond in there. So I kind of feel the same about really well done hardscaping and like spaces, you know, special sacred sort of spaces. Yeah. Similarly, seems like it would add something of value to the bottom line at the end of the day. I sure hope so. I hope looks that great. is the direction of our culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, this, we do a lot of rain gardens, which is a huge part of like water management. Um, a lot of in the, in the permaculture world, I felt like I came, um, up with the whole like berm and swale thing and like moving water across the landscape. But I quickly realized that, um, in the urban and suburban context, it's all about rain gardens. And these are depressions in the landscape that, um, allow water to pool and infiltrate before they run further downstream. And, um, I, this is for people who are interested in this, this is all like the work of Brad Lancaster 
And um, early, probably about five years ago, I went to Tucson, Arizona and did a long form training, water management training with a watershed management group there. Mm. And I, I point that out amongst a lot of other training that, that has, I've um, taken in the permaculture world since getting started. But that one in particular was really instrumental in hammering home um, how to design water-wise landscapes. Mm. Um, anyway, so this is like somebody's having a water issue with too much water um, on going to a particular area of the property. They wanted to beautify so we kind of start by getting things laid out. We're using a bunyip, you know, a little um, clear water, clear tube with water in it and two stakes. Very simple technology that is um, often taught in PDCs, I feel like. And um, did you have that in, in your PDC, Jesse, the bunyip? Yep. Yeah, mine was in uh, downtown Detroit, but we still put, got an A-frame, learned how to use it, had a bunyip, learned how to use it. I was like, this is the... The bunyip especially is so practical and so simple, yeah. but it's like, man, I've used it a million times since just to get level, you know? Yep. The bunyip we use all the time and we don't really use the A-frame. We use every, we're constantly using um, a line level on, oh. you know, we run stakes and put a line level out and get, and and then by using um, a measuring tape with a line level, we can, we can basically figure out the difference of any elevations. Oh, but, cool. And a lot of our rain gardens, we're using just the bunyip. We get laid out. We start digging in the, the, the rain garden. And this is um, kind of just a sequence of what a little bit of this looks like. Yeah. And um, starting to get it all mulched in, get, get the plants, make sure we're really setting overflow elevations properly, getting those overflows rocked to make sure that they're they're armored and and we're not getting um erosion happening at those locations so that's kind of um a typical like little suburban rain garden project a lot of times we're hoping to do these types of projects in a more integrated way where there's a lot more going on in terms of food production but i really liked the way that we we had um you know step by step in in this in this particular case so wanted yeah. to choose these photos no this is great and and presumably the client if they're like loving it that they could add you know okay let's add a little bit of food for us adjacent to this or something like that through the years you know yep so. and then we do a lot of things like this you know like food forest orchard plantings where we're we come in and do a, this is a huge grassy suburban lawn a lot of times we'll bring in um some new good soil um and make like in this case you're kind of looking at like a, a boomerang berm so we, we set up these little boomerang berms con ag against the contour of the slope plant our fruit trees into there then we start um setting out the cardboard that is going to be um smothering the rest of the grass bring in tons of compost and wood chips to smother everything and then that's kind of like what it looks like after the first phase yeah. And then we come in, we've got hundreds of herbaceous perennials, you know, everything. Oh, you're good. All the all all the good stuff that we read about in the in the books, everything from, you know, native rutabecchia and echinacea type plants to perennial herbs like thyme, oregano, sage, 
and his hyssa, bronze fennel, all that good stuff. And we're kind of arranging it all. And then, um, you know, after a year or two, are you able to see that picture? I'm seeing just blank kind of green screen on this one for um, some reason. Hang on for one sec. Yep. I just tried to take you to a picture and it didn't... Um, didn't load or something i lost i lost the uh i don't know why it's doing that well everything all previous pictures were looking good to me so i'll i'm gonna the i think you get the point and then the the, the only the only picture i was missing there is like what happened the the after so you know the fruit trees start to grow up the the flowers are flowering all that good stuff yeah um, totally and is that how you typically go about projects like these? Like, do you typically do it in clearly defined phases? Like, okay, we'll put in the main pieces first and then the following season that's appropriate will come in. Yeah, and that's a great question. Um, depends on the client. We do end up using a sod skinner quite often, which is yep. allows us to get rid of the sod. Um, so many times in our area, there is um, overrun bermuda grass within the landscape which is a spreading grass that cannot be sheet mulched so you wow. can't use cardboard and mulch and other things to smother it out so and if you do you'll what you'll end up doing is killing everything but the bermuda grass and then you just supplied endless room for growth for the bermuda grass so you um so ultimately we end up having to use the sod cutter. Um, we can and cut out the, the sod and then bring in improved soil. In the case of that yard, you know, it all depends on the client's timeline, their appetite. In this case, it was a backyard. So they were okay with just a huge amount of mulch sitting there for six months as it yeah. all breaks down. Now, when we do this in people's front yards, they're usually less okay with just, um, how just having that amount of mulch sitting there for a long time, but we've done it tons of times. It really just depends on the client. You know, a lot of times if the client is really far away, we just want to get it all done in one fell swoop, especially yeah. if we can keep the sod on site. Like a lot of times when we skin the sod, we're just moving it somewhere else where we need it. Um, and building up somewhere or they can use it for a problem area or um, they've got, you know, a wooded area where we can gently disperse it. So a lot of different options. Um, but when, when we can, we like the sheet mulch option, but from a business perspective, it's a lot more streamlined usually to just get rid of the grass completely and do everything at once. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That, that's awesome. And, you know, just to be mindful of your time, um, like I say, I always have questions because this is just this, like you, it's this, I'm a very nerdy about this sort of thing. It's always fun to talk about. Um, but like, where do you see things going? Like what's the next steps for you all? Are you getting enough clients in your area or is it like starting to then expand outward to further out regions? Yeah, we're really committed to staying in our area. So I'm not, um, I will say that every day I find a new foodscaping company that's popping up. Really? I mean, it's, it's, it is crazy how, and I know this because I'm following the foodscaper um, and custom foodscaping Instagram accounts, um, which, um, and I see like new, I see like who will like or comment. And I, I take note because 
I'm super curious um, because we have this foodscaper business about new foodscaping companies and like what's happening in this industry. Um, so a lot of this is um, people who are kind of more focused on like raised bed vegetable gardens, right? Mm. So I don't want to think, I don't want to give the impression that like all the, that there's new companies starting all the time who are getting into more like permaculture inspired Gaia's garden type landscapes that I think requires a lot of, um, yeah, that, that is a lot more knowledge and learning that goes into that than, um, doing vegetable gardens. But I think that the vegetable gardens present a huge opportunity for slowly integrating into this profession because the vegetable garden is like the carrot, you know, it's like people, what do they, when they write their vision statement, when they write into us, they're always saying, I want to go outside my door and harvest from my yard. I want my kids to know where their food comes from. Mm-hmm. And the way that you can deliver that quickly is with a vegetable garden. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you, you get the vegetable garden, it, it gets installed in only a few days and then you're planting. And, and then a few months later, you're already harvesting. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're developing this relationship with them. We start planting the blackberries and the raspberries and the asparagus and the fruit trees and then they're starting to kind of like come online. Then down the road, now they're starting to read articles in the New York Times and wherever about, oh, this thing called a food forest. Oh, I can have a prairie in my yard. And then you're the person who they come to and they say, could we do like a little prairie patch on my side yard? Could we add in these perennial herbs around my fruit trees? And and so, you know, not everybody comes online with like full on permaculture knowledge, but they are, um, they're learning alongside you as the business grows. And then meanwhile, you're saying, Hey, you know, this is becoming a lot. We offer maintenance, you know, can we get you signed up for maintenance this year? And they're like, that sounds amazing. Yes, <laughs> we need the help because this has become yeah. too much. And I don't know yeah. how to care for asparagus. And I don't know when I should prune the raspberries and all these things that they're, um, they're excited about the plants and the yields and, and everything that it's doing for their kids and nature. And, but um, of course, they need they need expert help, and that's where the foodscaper comes in. Yeah, absolutely. And just in terms of like this being a viable career path for someone maybe looking to get started, mm-hmm. or maybe like you just took a PDC and you're like, okay, I want to do this. I want to make this part yeah. of my livelihood. Do you feel like it's a fairly accessible to people? Is there a long tail? Is it like, well, it's going to take three years before you're profitable, like many businesses do? Or how do you see it from your perspective well, since you've been doing it? Yeah, um, it took me a long time to get to a place where I feel like I am even making a, um, a decent income. You okay. know, um, right now I'm in my, um, we're about to enter our sixth year, seventh year, seventh year. I'm able to pay myself like $45,000 this year. Um, That's good. I feel but, like... But the previous years, it wasn't that good, right? Yes, it's taken a long time to get here. And even yeah. so, you know, um, I would like to make more than that. Um, yes. But, but I am able to have a livelihood, you know, and luckily um, my my wife is a teacher and so she's had stable income as well throughout this whole time and... Um, but I, I put that out there to say, you know, nobody's getting rich as a foodscaper. Um, but I think you can make a decent living. Um, and it, and I think, you know, one, when I'm 10 years in, you know, I, I would hope that I'm paying myself even significantly more than I am now. 
And um, I will say that it's super important to me that people watch something like this and don't just think they have to start a company because um, just because I started a company doesn't mean that I encourage it. You know, if you have the entrepreneurial spirit to, and you are very self-motivated and you don't mind working, you know, till three o'clock in the morning, sometimes like getting a design out or answering. I, I spent so many times like answering emails at five in the morning before we went out for a job. Um, later that day, you know, none of that is glamorous. I, I'm not proud of any of that. Um, it's just where I was when we started hiring people, and you know, we've grown to eight people on the team now. And and sometimes, you know, the fire hose is just coming faster than I can drink. Um, on the other hand, there's these seven other people who work with me who um, yeah. they they don't have to drink from the fire hose. You know, they have regular scheduled hours and. They work eight to four and they have full year round positions and, um, you know, they have like jobs, um, in, in the most awesome way. I mean that they, um, they have the reliability, they have their salary or their hourly rate. They know, um, and, and they can, they're learning along the way. You know, a lot of them are, some of them are incredibly accomplished and others are, newer and have skills to bring and that's why we hired them but um they're all really passionate about making the world a better place you know that's for sure but yeah all those all those people are um it's all to say that you can join a foodscaping company you don't have to start one right yeah 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 that's that's totally it and you know I started a market garden uh, ill-advisedly in my 40s, you know, because I was so excited and I wanted to learn the skills. And I was like, cool, I'll make money, you know, like probably not going to make a ton of money. I know how long it takes to ramp up a business and that sort of thing. But but man, if you're in your 20s and you're like you say, you have that spirit of like, I want to create sustainable jobs in my community. And I'm just the type of person to like start this thing and build Mm -hmm. it for a few years then that that is the path or that might be a path for you to consider. But I love also the opportunity, the idea that you can find foodscaping companies to just be a part of and learn the skills and get paid a normal salary and just not have to worry about the headaches of owning and managing a business. But you just get to show up and put in really cool ecological functional landscapes, learn incredible amounts of skill. I mean, unlike like we talked about earlier, unlike traditional landscaping, there's not a ton of skills that you're taking away from those jobs and no offense to anybody who's done it. Um, I've, I've done those jobs and, you know, you learn some things, edging and that sort of thing. But with the work that you're doing, there's a tremendous amount you're putting in trellises, you're building raised beds, you're putting in rain gardens, you know, on and on and on. And the maintenance piece alone, not many people get to see um, jujubes grow for six, seven years in a row and really see what they do and where they thrive and where they don't thrive. I mean, you're gaining a a tremendous experience from a job like that. So uh, those are just my reflections. I don't have a question. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, I get, I mean, that's what this, this is all about, you know, um, feeding my own curiosity in so many respects, you know, it's like, well, what, what do I really, what am I interested in seeing being planted here? Because they kind of gave me carte blanche and it's like, yeah, I, I want to see what these jujubes are going to do. And, um, I, I, one part of the story that I didn't tell here, Jesse, is that I converted my own yard into a food forest. Um, and I kind of did the whole Eric Tonesmeyer thing. And, 
um, planted a lot of funky things um, and planted a lot of things at Earth Dance so that I could make a bunch of mistakes beforehand before I, so I didn't necessarily make my first mistake with a client. Yeah, that's smart. That's totally smart. I, I did a very similar thing. Did you, what about um the plant aspect of your business? Do you mm. just talk to local, you know, unusual uh, plant dealers or nurseries or <laughs> Or do you are you pulling some plants from like that space that you created where you just mm. pack full and tight? Because I know Eric Tonesmeyer, he sells his excess plants, you know. Yeah, so probably no, not we do not sell me, but <laughs> I'm constantly trying to simplify the business by not adding more um things like that. No, we we buy all the plants in. You know, we at okay. first we were just buying all these plants bare root from um places like you know, Burnt Ridge Nursery, One Green World Nursery, uh, Rain Tree Nursery, uh, all these yep. types of mail order places like that. And then now we've kind of graduated to um, being able to purchase a bunch of stuff wholesale. And it turns yeah. out there there are wholesale suppliers who um, have have some decent plant selection, um, mm -hmm. and that's that's been encouraging for me to find out about. And then for all the uncommon perennial veggies and um, we have a local nursery who we tell them what we want way ahead of time. And then they grow out, you know, a few flats of sorrel and sea kale and bronze fennel. And a lot of the plants that I am using in a lot of our, um, in a lot of our food forest plantings and edible landscaping plantings, um, yep. they are growing those out for us because we, we've said, well, we can handle, you know, we can handle a flat of 36 of those and, and 36 of these and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yes. And then we're, but we are still ordering a lot of things bare root and potting it up and growing it out ourselves because so much of the nursery industry will only ship you a plant in spring, but we're right. planting all, all season long, you know? Okay. So we need, you know, a lot of our biggest projects are in October and November, like orchard plantings and things like that. And we need plants and almost nobody will ship you. There's very limited selection. Um, yes. So you got to have that stuff on hand already. And so we have okay. our own nursery that um, allows us to kind of get through the year. Yep. That that's great advice. And that makes total, total sense. Um, well, just to wind things down, Matt, um, obviously people can follow up with you on the websites listed below. Once again, what, if someone was to go to customfoodscaping.com, what would they be looking for there versus the foodscaper.com? Mm. Yeah. So custom foodscaping is our design build company in St. Louis that if you want to have a edible landscape in St. Louis, you call, you go to customfoodscaping.com. Okay, perfect. Um, and then if you want to learn about being an edible landscaper for a living, you go to the foodscaper. I always say for a living because we're really not in the business of creating gardeners. Um, a gardener being somebody who is, um, in, in this case, a hobbyist. Um, and I am a hobbyist gardener. I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to really underscore that you can make a living growing food for clients and designing and installing those landscapes. And that is what we're doing at the Foodscaper. Um, so it's, it has a whole tinge of business, you know, marketing, um, and other things related to making a living doing this.
Yes, that makes total sense. So, and then on that note, just as a reminder, go to summit.pina.in and join us for the summit this February 2nd through 4th. Uh, Matt will be there amongst other sort of great business minds in the permaculture world, all sorts of great ideas and ways that you can either begin a business or level up an existing business um, or partner up and create guilds of businesses. So lots of great things coming, Matt. I really look forward to talking to you at the summit and seeing you there and look forward to your presentation. And thank you so much for sharing all this. This has been great. Oh my gosh. Thank you for inviting me. It's such a joy to be able to connect and, and talk to fellow permies. Yeah, likewise. I, I could do it all day long and I mostly get to nowadays, thankfully. So That's awesome. it's my, my, yeah, it was great to meet you and we'll be in touch soon. And thanks everybody for listening. We'll talk to you soon.